0: theme seems pretty evident, doesn't it? theme of humility. That's a theme that's really big in the Gospel of Luke, really big as Christians. And I want to kind of maybe put the ball on the tee here for a minute before we jump into this passage. Now, first of all, the world is a broken place. It's kind of self-evident, isn't it? And God has called us as his people to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, to carry out the mission of the gospel, to carry out the mission of, as we saw in the passage here, uh, reaching out to the lame and the brokenhearted, both spiritually, physically, emotionally. We are the hands and feet of Christ in this world. I love that well-worn story that comes from uh, Strasbourg, Germany after one of the world wars. Where after the city was bombed, one of the statues was left without hands. It was a statue of Jesus at one of the churches. And the hands were knocked off because of the fighting. And they got together as a community to talk about how we're going to rebuild this statue. And there they decided together that they would actually leave the hands off the statue. That that would be a living example as God's people in that city. They said, for Christ has our hands to do his work on earth. And we feed the hungry, we give drink to the thirsty, we entertain the stranger. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. So we are the hands and feet of Christ in this world. We are called ambassadors for Christ by the Apostle Paul. We're the city that's set on a hill. Picture yourself coming in the ancient world where you would look up and it'd be one of these big limestone cities and you could just see it from miles away. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. So many analogies that remind us we are the hands and feet of Christ in the world. But that brings up a question. If we are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, what should our posture be towards other people? Because there's a sense in which some might say, well, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. He is Lord of all. Therefore, we should Lord over all. I mean, that would be a line of reasoning some might take. And yet when Jesus came... He humbled himself and he calls his people to the same, that we take a posture of humility, a posture of humility. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. We as his disciples, as we go throughout our day and throughout our world, we are not to make these egotistical power grabs, but we are to humble ourselves in this world and let God do some amazing things in and through us. Now, just on the topic of humility and what's in this passage, let me just remind us something here that our hearts, people are just, prone towards selfishness it's kind of like a car that's out of alignment and the same thing can happen with us where you're driving down the road and you naturally drift towards the right or towards the left even christian people because we are fallen because we're imperfect right because we're sinners we have this pull towards selfishness or think about a boat that just drifts with the water That's like us maybe in this world if the church starts drifting just with the culture and the selfishness therein. So if you want to get a good look at a contrast between the world and between what Jesus is saying, it's a great passage in Luke 22. There's a slide for this, guys, if you want to flip it up. And he said, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And because those in authority are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. See that word benefactor? Do you know what a benefactor is? The Greek word means good maker, kind of a funny word. A benefactor is somebody that can do something for you, right? And what Jesus is describing here, think of a benefactor of a college that gives a bunch of money, that's a benefactor, the benefactor of a building. Jesus is saying in this passage that this is how the world works according to the quote unquote Gentiles. The world works in a way where you do something for me and I do something for you. In other words, it's all reciprocity. And Jesus is not entirely against reciprocity, but the whole world just moves by reciprocity. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You get me a job, I can cut your grass. You're nice to me, therefore I can make you laugh. See, the world moves in that direction. There's a natural drift towards selfishness. I think the most important part of this passage is where he says, but not so with you. My people are going to be different. If you're going to be a God follower, it's not going to be egotistical power grab. No. What's it going to be? It's going to be moving with humility. Moving with humility. And so we want to be a contrast to the world. By the way, this is one of the few places where Christianity and you know, uh, biological evolutionary thinking actually go hand in hand. Both believe that the world is pretty much interested in itself. <laughs> right? Only we do something different about it. So it's not a secret at all, right? You do well for me, I do well for you. Uh, And I'm not gonna take any more time to explain this except say this, you and I both know that people do not take an interest in you unless they think you can do something for them. They start to take an interest in you when you have things going well for you or when they think you can offer them something. And I don't always mean financially, could be something else in general, but that's the way of the world. Jesus is not so with you. So I want to talk about humility and walking in humility. Let me just make a a note about the word humility first. The word humility in English has become synonymous with some ideas that I don't think biblically it should be. And I just want to give you these. Number one, humility is not weakness. That's a mistake. Can I ask you a question? Who's our example of humility? Jesus. Was Jesus weak? No. Jesus was mighty. Jesus healed people. Jesus was very competent, wasn't he? Jesus was the smartest guy that ever spoke, most powerful man that ever lived. Jesus was humble while at the same time mighty. What Jesus did do in his humility is he set aside, right? He used his power for the good of others and, of course, serving other people. He didn't demand that service, so to speak, in, in the same way. Um, that that the world thinks of it. And so whatever, here's my point, whatever humility means, it's not synonymous, it's not synonymous with weakness. The word meekness, which has fallen out of use in the English language, is actually a very good one. There's actually a Greek concept of meekness that says somebody that has a very big sharp sword, but they keep it in the sheath. (laughs) That's the concept of meekness, right? And number two, really important here, that humility is not self-loathing, and it's not downplaying your abilities. Let's go back to Jesus. Jesus is the humblest man that ever lived. Do you think he downplayed his gifts? Show me a passage where Jesus says, I just don't think I can do that. <laughs> you know, There's times he didn't use his gifts, right? There is no passage in scripture, nowhere to be found, where Jesus is self-loathing, where he's downplaying his gifts, where he's trying to take something away from himself to make other people feel better. In fact, I see the opposite when I read scripture. When Jesus was about to be arrested, remember what he said? He said, my kingdom is not of this world, but if it was, my servants would fight. You know what's implied? And we'd win the fight. (laughs) What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, I'm the most competent soldier that you have ever seen. I'm the most competent general you've ever seen. And I could marshal forces that would destroy you in a moment's notice. Jesus is actually showing competence and some kind of strength there while at the same time he's humble. How about passages where Jesus says stuff like this, And so you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, I'm going to do this. Jesus there is displaying a spiritual competence while at the same time he's humble. So what am I saying here? And I'm not, I don't want to go any deeper just because it's, you know, we could sit here all day. What I'm saying is, when you hear the word humility, do not think weakness. And do not think that God is asking you to self-loathe. He's not asking you to hide your skills. And I especially just kind of appeal to the college and high school kids in here. You know, humility does not mean you're downplaying your confidence. It doesn't mean you're afraid to put yourself out there. Put yourself out there. Take your place in the world that brings glory to God. Be the best in the classroom you can be. Be the best on the ball field you can be. Be the best kind of friend you can be. If you know the answer, answer the question. Humility is not hiding our gifts or hiding our competence. Humility means we're not doing the egotistical power grabs. And we're not becoming a self-tabloid for everybody to look at us and admire us because we have our relationship with God. But young people, don't ever hide your competence. You use it for the glory of God and the good of others in the world. Take your place in the world that way. I'm going to take it a step further. You downplay your abilities in this world. You are not only robbing yourself of something, you are robbing the world of something that God has put in you. So when you hear humility, do not think God is asking you to be weak in some sense. It actually implies some kind of strength in there. And number two, you take your place in the world in a way that brings glory to God. All right, how should we move in this world as humble people? I'm going to give you four ways. The first one's going to be the longest, then they're going to go kind of quick, okay? Number one, Todd read this passage. If we're going to be humble, we're going to have to look broken and hurting people in the eye because everyone matters. Look broken people in the eye. How about this passage where Jesus is invited to a feast? And what does Jesus do? He lays his hands on this man with an abdomen problem and heals him. So let's start here. Let's say this. For various reasons in this world, we and everybody, we tend to avoid broken people. Uh, There's a lot of reasons for this. We just don't want to be around broken people. Broken people don't have a lot to offer us. And broken people might drain us of our emotional resources, maybe even physical and financial resources. And so think about the parable of the Good Samaritan where a man is making his way on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is called the bloody way. It's very dangerous. He's attacked by two thieves. And then, of course, what happens? Two people pass by him, the Levite and the priest. And then the Samaritan comes and ministers to him. Now, we all know that story pretty well. But let's not forget a detail that we're going to probably overlook if we don't review it real quick. They did not just pass by the man. What did they do? They went to the other side of the street and passed by. Why? Nobody wants to be around broken people. Nobody wants to have that kind of guilt and shame. We don't want to feel like we have to do something. Sometimes we don't even know what to say. I don't think you need a degree in sociology to understand this one, right? Generally speaking, we want to avoid broken people, and we want to be around people that are powerful and can help us and beautiful people and whatnot. And that brings us to our very first principle here. Jesus is teaching us this. Look hurting people in the eye because everyone matters. All right, here's the story. Verse 1. On a Sabbath, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. Now, stop right there. We can do a whole sermon just on verse 1. I love this. Number 1, get ready to have um, you know, one of our... Uh, uh, maybe a little ideas upset because I felt that way this week. Number one, guess what? God loves self-righteous people too. <laughs> okay, Jesus is reaching out to a Pharisee, and I'm going to tell you this in a minute. It's the third dinner he's had with the Pharisees. We have this feeling that God just wants all the prodigals to come home. Well, of course God wants all the prodigals to come home, but He also interacts in dialogues with Pharisees. God loves self-righteous people. He doesn't want them to stay self-righteous. He wants them to grow. He wants them to change. He wants them to come into a relationship. But Jesus is not afraid to be around self-righteous people. He's not afraid to interact with them, and neither should we. It's interesting. Self-righteous people are tough to be around, aren't they? They just talk about themselves constantly. You can almost feel like they're oozing judgment sometimes, you know? Look down on other people. And therefore, we want to put distance between us and self-righteous people. Not Jesus. He narrows the gap. He's not afraid. We're not there yet, but in Luke 15, the father goes out not just to the prodigal, but the elder brother. God has a heart for the self-righteous, so should we. Number two, I want you to know that Jesus never refused anyone's invitation. And he will not refuse yours. This is the, this is the uh, third time. And Jesus here receives the invitation for the third time. I don't know what language you prefer when we talk about looking for God. You want to use the word seeking God? That's biblical. You want to talk about connecting with God? That's a little more now. Whatever language you want to use, God never refuses those that lean into him. You draw to me, near to me, God says, and I will draw nigh to you. That's the old King James. Now I'm going to say this. When you do pursue God and he does show up because he will, that doesn't mean he's going to leave us just as we are. What Jesus does here is he receives the invitation, but he makes everybody pretty uncomfortable in the process. I find he does that in my life. You know, I meet with God, I invite him in, and two things happen when I meet with God. Every, every time I really meet with God, number one, I never feel so affirmed at that moment, and I never feel so confronted and uncomfortable at the same time. That's, the, that's what God does at this party. He makes people feel very welcome, and he makes people feel rather uncomfortable. Why? Because his purpose is not just to be friendly. His purpose is to bring change. And the last thing I'll say is, this is the God of second and third chances. Third time he invites. All right, verse 1. It's the house of a Pharisee. Midday meal, the course here is bread. You prepare this the uh, Friday, the evening before. And these kind of meetings, you know, they like um, uh, reinforce social hierarchies. And by the way, I think Jesus is being trapped here. Notice the language. He was being carefully watched in verse 1. And what's a guy with an abdomen problem even doing here? Like, that's pretty strange. And then after he heals them, what does he say? Go your way. So what's happening in a passage like this is, is, is probably Jesus is being trapped And um, there's a man there that's suffering from this abdomen problem. We know this is dropsy. And Jesus, in verse 4, takes hold of the man. This is the word for arrest, by the way. He arrests him. And then he heals him. So here's our very first application. Look hurting people in the eye because everyone matters. We tend to avoid eye contact with people, but Jesus here shows us that everyone matters. And the one thing I want you to focus on is Jesus touched him. Could he have healed him without touching him? Absolutely. He does that. He did that with the centurion's daughter, but he touched him like he did the leper. Why does Jesus put his hands on this man? One reason and one reason only. He is not only showing compassion, Jesus is showing, I have received this man. And when God receives someone, what? Everybody better receive that person. Christ here is restoring not just the man physically. He's restoring his dignity. He's restoring his very humanity here. There's something real powerful. Now for you and I, that might mean touching people, but it also means looking broken people in the eye, treating them as significant, treating them because they're in God's image, because everyone matters. Number two, we want to avoid egotistical self-promotion. Why? Because God is able to lift you up. And here's the second little vignette. So now we have a passage where Jesus goes to a party. Now, their parties are not like our party. You and I live in an egalitarian society. Anytime someone shows off in an egalitarian society, they actually show themselves to be uncool, right? Right? I mean, let's be, you know, when you're at a party or you're maybe in a gymnasium and someone goes in front of everyone and starts flexing and doing backflips and things like that, even if they're good backflips, you know, you're like, that's egotistical. That guy's uncool. That's a pick-me person or something like that, whatever language we might use. But in, in hierarchy cultures, that stuff is extremely common. They're not egalitarian like us. So you fight in order to show people how cool you are. And that's what happens at these parties. All the people come in, and they want to go right to the chief seats. Now, picture this. There's a, the seats would be like a U-shape, you know? And the chief seat would be right at the base of the U. And then, the, So Jesus probably sat there. And then the prominent seats are kind of off to the right or the left. And then as you get further out, and by the way, there's the rabbinical literature shows they often did this by age, especially by the 2nd century, 3rd century. But back in the 1st century, it's kind of first come, first serve. But Jesus says, if somebody prominent walks in, they're going to bump you to another seat. That's going to be rather embarrassing. So Jesus here warns against jumping into that chief seat, especially prematurely. Now, before I touch on this, let me just say, let me tell you what's not happening here. And again, I want to make sure we understand. Jesus is not telling us that we shouldn't honor people. He's not telling you, you know, there's this thing like, well... um, Maybe he's telling us we should never honor people with any chief seats. He's not condemning the chief seats here. He's simply condemning the way they're like crabs in a bucket going for him. I can think of all these Old Testament rituals and stories where people were honored for different things, like putting the chief seat. Like if you're, mark, you're, if you're older, you're given You're given honor. A milestone, like having a baby, you were given honor. If God does something special through you, you were given honor. There's nothing wrong with us honoring each other. That's not bad. He's also not telling us to avoid encouraging each other. Like, I don't want that girl's head to get big, or that guy's head to get big. Therefore, I'm not going to compliment him. That's what the Puritans used to do, stuff like that, you know? The problem here is not promotion. The problem is self-promotion and egotistical self-promotion. That's why there's that great proverb that says, let someone else praise you, not your own mouth, not your own lips. Also, one more time, back to the original point on on humility, we should not conflate this by believing that God doesn't want us to be everything in the world he wants us to be. Our faith should move us into the world with humility, but it should also move us with confidence. That's what God wants us to do, so we can glorify him. So what's happening here is egotistical self-promotion. They're making a spectacle out of themselves. Crabs in the bucket, so to speak. The principle here that we're marking onto is we should avoid egotistical self-promotion because God is able to lift us up. In other words, you don't have to rush to the chief seat. You don't have to be the one that everybody looks at. God has a way of exalting us. There's an old theologian. His name's Francis Schaeffer. 20th century. He's from Pennsylvania. But he was in Switzerland for most of his uh, years. And on this passage, I remember he uses the word, it's a funny word, extrusion. That's his idea. It's kind of a science word, extrusion. Like when you take toothpaste and you squeeze it and some shoots up, you're kind of extruding it out the top. Or think about two plates that come together in a mountain forms. They're pushing something up. And that's what Schaeffer says is happening here. You don't have to push yourself out of the bottle, right? You don't have to to be the mountain. God has a way of working in life that exalts people at certain times in their life in a good way. And he gets us where we need to be. So we don't want to have egotistical self-promotion. That doesn't mean we don't use our gifts. That doesn't mean you don't make your resume as good as you can be. You need to do that. But we're not going to do egotistical self-promotion. Think about David. David was the youngest son. Overlooked. Remember when they came to look for a king? He didn't even come out. But God had a way of extruding him. The plates came together. David became king. If we went around this congregation, I can tell you, we would have testimony after testimony of times in people's lives where they avoided egotistical self-promotion and God exalted them to the top in some crazy, mysterious way. The Lord is able to do that. We can trust that he'll get us where we need to be when we need to be there. Number three, we're going to move quicker here. Love those who cannot return the favor because in the end, God will bless our efforts. Mentioned this before, selfishness lies at the heart of a lot of good deeds. So I was thinking on this point, I told you this before, if you haven't seen it, the 1980 movie, Elephant Man, whew, that's, that there is a movie about Joseph Merrick who was deformed, uh, terribly deformed, dragged around as a circus, he had a three foot circumference for a head. Imagine trying to live like that. People thought he couldn't talk, they thought he couldn't understand words, he was terribly mistreated. And it was a doctor, the doctor's played by Anthony Hopkins in the movie, who kind of rescues him from the sideshow and brings him into high society. And he learns some things about Merrick, the deformed man, and uh, he he finds out he's much more intelligent than people thought. But what happens in the movie, this is really critical, Merrick, the deformed man, becomes an object of curiosity for high society. So where he used to be in a circus and people would come and look at him, now all the rich people in the city want to come and talk to him. And there's a point in the movie where the good doctor who rescued him has to question his own motives. And he looks at his wife and says, am I a good man or am I a bad man? I know I did a good thing, but did I rescue him from one handler just to be his handler in high society? Sometimes, I'm glad the good doctor had sense to ask that question. We should do it too. Sometimes we do things pretty selfish motives. Jesus describes that here. He shows that behind many acts of love is the principle of reciprocity. That doesn't mean all reciprocity is bad, right? The world works to agree by reciprocity. But God's people, that should not be our defining mark. A defining mark should be love, not that we're going to get something just by giving to people, we're not going to be around a certain group of people just because they can, you know, fill our pockets or even fill us with, with happiness or something like that. We want to be more than that. The examples abound. We're extra nice to people so we can get a position. We get, our, uh, get out, get, uh, we get out of our way for attractive people. We scratch people's back who can scratch ours. We help people who can help us. Jesus says here in the passage, you will be blessed even if you cannot be repaid, Because you're going to be paid at the resurrection. I love the example of Ruth, one of the great stories in Scripture, where Ruth gives herself without any regard for reciprocity to Naomi. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. I understand you're a hurting widow. She doesn't pass by any other side of the road. By the way, I've often thought that that was kind of parable of the Good Samaritan was kind of borrowed from Ruth. It's almost a metaphor of Ruth. Because remember, there's another sibling or another um, uh, Orpha, who's the other sister-in-law. What does she do? She crosses the street and passes by the need. Ruth stops like the Samaritan and ministers to her, and she's a Moabitess, no less. At any rate, we have Ruth here who is reaching out to her mother-in-law without not only no expectation of reciprocity, but assuming that's never going to happen because she doesn't have anything anyway. And yet the Lord, what, extrude, remember that word? Not egotistical self-promotion, but exalts Ruth at the right time in her life to be everything God wants her to be. So what do we do, friends? We, 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 We love those that cannot return the favor. Because we believe by faith. God is going to bless our efforts. All right, number four. Fourth move of humility. We're going to befriend the humble because they're going to sit at the king's table. Now, this passage wasn't read. It's verse 15 through 24. And this is where Jesus tells them to go out into the highway and hedges. So real quick, it's like this. There's a, Jesus tells a parable. There's a man who wants to throw a banquet. These banquets would have what's called double invitation. Remember the book of Esther? There's a double invitation, very common in the ancient world. It's not like they have email, you know. So you give an invitation to people that you kind of feel out who's going to come and who's not. And then you give like a much more formal invitation the second time. And that's when people are called to come. It's a double invitation. So what happens here is the people kind of give a nod to the first invitation. The man spends all this money on a banquet and, you know, you know he's excited about this. People are wondering how many are going to come. And when he sends out that second invitation, people have all kinds of excuses. And these excuses are patently ridiculous. They're almost sarcastic. One of them says, well, I bought some land and now I got to go see it. I mean, even in the ancient world, you're going to buy land without seeing it is just silly. It's not like they got Zillow or something like that. Believe me, people are very familiar with where the Holy Land lies and what's in it. Second person says he purchased oxen without testing it. How many of you drive a car? Well, Kervana, all right, yep, modern world, I got you. Vroom, okay, sometimes we do that today. They didn't do that in the ancient world. You're not going to buy oxen without looking at them. And how about marriage? Oh, I just got married, therefore I can't go to the, the meeting or the invitation. You know, in the Old Testament, the only thing that exempted you from military service was if you were newly married. But that's a ridiculous excuse. You're talking about a couple days at a party. All of these are patently ridiculous excuses. They're probably insulting. And one thing I will say that kind of teaches us a theological lesson is this. We can always find a reason to say no to God, can't we? You always have a good reason. And the more reasons you give, the better they sound. But in the end, of course, sometimes step back and we hear this, or we stand before him and they look patently ridiculous. So two thoughts here about the humble people sitting at the king's table and we're going to sit with them. Number one, God desires fellowship with people. That is such a small but important truth that we want to remember. The subject matter here is a feast. You don't throw the feast in the ancient world for business purposes. There are other reasons you do business. You do business elsewhere. The feast is for one thing, fellowship. You want your friends there. You want people that love you there and people that you love. He prepares a what? Table for me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runs over. God wants to fellowship with people. God is not looking at you to work for him. He's not. He's looking for a relationship with you. Number two, it's the humble people that are most open to accepting that relationship for fellowship through Christ. Verse 21 says, uh, So the servant reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city. That the streets and the la- You know what that is? the highway and the hedges. That's the whole language. And bring in the poor and the cripple and the lame and the blind. The old King James says, compel them to come in. Compel them. Why would you have to compel poor people to come to a rich person's party? I mean, really, it's where the swimming pool is. They're going to be able to eat food that they've never eaten before. They're going to sit on couches that they'll never get to sit on again. These poor people that are poor to the point of being beggars, that's what highway and hedges mean, this is exactly where they would want to be. Think about a person that you greatly admire. It's like them coming to you, you know, some athlete or something like that, saying, hey, would you come over to my house for the party? That's where you, you know, it's like, wow, okay, that's interesting, I think I'll go to that. Why do you have to compel poor people to go to this party? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. They don't believe the invitation is real. They don't believe this can possibly be true. You gotta compel them. You gotta tell them, Jesus says. The point to appreciate they feel unworthy to fellowship with God. They feel like they're too guilty, too shameful. Maybe they've sinned away that day of grace. Maybe they weren't brought up in an environment where they were taught things you know, from, from the gospel. And so they have to be compelled. Fourth principle, we want to make friends. We want to reach out to the humble because they sit at the king's table. They're the ones most likely to to receive the invitation to fellowship with God through Christ. The passage that I imagine many of us have in mind is, Blessed are the, oh, I to, Blessed are the poor, there you go, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? So a lot of Greek words for poor. There's like poor, which is like day laborer. And then there's a, there's a Greek word poor, it actually literally means to cringe. That's the Greek word. It's the word for beggar. So the picture is there's one hand over the face and one arm reached out looking for some kind of, you know, handout. That's the word in that passage. Blessed are the beggars. Those with a hand over their face and an arm stretched out because theirs is the kingdom of God. Is this you? Is this you? Reaching out to God? Looking? Want to be in a fellowship? Want relationship? Want to be closer to him? Maybe you're having a hard time believing it today. This passage is for you. He's compelling you to come in. He's pulling your heart. You don't have to have it all together. Not at all. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love and care. You loved us first, therefore we love you. Pray, bless your word. Bless our service and our business meaning to follow. Jesus name amen